That's great. Okay. So welcome to the uh, main seminar this month. So I wanted to make a couple announcements and introduce our speaker. Let me do the announcements first since those are the easy thing uh, to forget. So um, for nursing uh, credit, apparently the guideline is you have to observe at least 80% of this. So, uh, so we're going to be, of course, closely watching that. Um, we'll be monitoring for that. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I put you call to uh, be in charge of that, and, and I don't want you to sacrifice any measure necessary to be sure. Um, this is a simple, from a conflict of interest standpoint, the speaker has nothing to disclose. He's not going to talk about off-label use, and uh, there's no commercial support for today's conference. So Michael Mugavero is an associate professor um, of uh, medicine at UAB. He has degrees from um, Notre Dame, Vanderbilt, and Duke, and um, worked with uh, HIV Care, and is the co-director of their HIV program, and as you see, is sort of talking with us about an issue that is of huge importance to all of us, which is how do we keep our patients' uh, access to our good intentions and good medicine. So thank you. To have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It's been really great to come up and be here, and Richard for the hospitality. And um, talk about engagement and care today from Cascade to Continuum to Control and share a lot of the work that um, we've done domestically, but I think some of the framework really spans cultures and spans context. So I think some basic principles and conceptual frameworks that really can span multiple different contexts and also multiple chronic diseases, but looking at HIV as a model. These are the objectives. So I was asked to give you know four objectives. So um, Screen if we can I'm not sure if that can be done. Yeah, well, that's okay. I think it's we could work through that. Um, but the conceptual frameworks for the continuum of care to describe individual population health implications of care engagement. Don't break anything. Don't break anything. <laughs> I think it's all right. Yeah, I think if I think it's something that's a little bit too distracting. I'm going to talk about measuring retention and what kind of that difference between missed visits and kept visits. A great interest of mine has been what does it mean to be retained in care and looking at different methods to, to measure this and what they capture and look like. And then at the end, I'm going to describe evidence-based approaches that have been proven to improve engagement in care. And there's very few of these. Um, there's been so much focus on the later steps of medications and comparing regimens and even adherence, but not the earlier steps on testing, linkage, and retention in care. We really have three parts to the talk. So the first part will be more of a big picture overview, uh, frameworks and kind of setting the, the stage. In the middle part, we'll talk about some of the work that we've done over the last decade, looking at this area of engagement and care. And the last third, we'll focus on the evidence-based interventions. So I suspect most in the room are familiar with this uh, trial, HPTN 052, got a lot of attention. This was the first release uh, in May 2011, the press release. And this is a study looking at serodiscordant couples, who, uh, one partner positive, one partner was negative with high CD4 counts, higher at a level that you wouldn't start therapy according to guidelines in that, the countries, um, and randomized to immediate therapy initiation with antiretrovirals versus delayed therapy until someone's CD4 dropped lower. And what was observed was a dramatic reduction in new infections. So there's a 96% reduction in new HIV infections. So through earlier treatment, suppression of viral load, dramatic decreases in transmission, um, secondary prevention, 
Tom Quinn showed us this over a decade ago in a classic New England Journal paper showing that the level of virus in the plasma was correlated with the risk of transmission. But this randomized trial now showing that treatment lowering viral load can lead to prevention really got a lot of attention. And I think over the last three years, the idea of HIV treatment as prevention has come to the fore, and a lot of emphasis has focused on this, both in the scientific literature. Science in 2011 called this the breakthrough of the year, but also in the lay press. I mean, we had the economist on their cover saying, does this herald the end of AIDS? So a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest in the idea of treatment as prevention and the potential to prevent new infections through more effective widespread antiviral therapy. And I think this was first published by Ed Gardner and colleagues in CID in 2011 and kind of put the brakes on for treatment as prevention or gave a sobering picture of how far we have to go to achieve the population benefits of therapy. So this looks at um, folks who are infected through the different steps to achieving viral suppression. And has everyone seen this before, this cascade? It seems like it's been a lot of places, just about everywhere. It's hard to not, to not see this at different conferences. But the idea of the 1.2 million Americans who are living with HIV infection that about 20% are undiagnosed and unaware, so haven't yet tested or unaware of their status. Um, among those that are known to be positive, have tested positive, half are not in care. So half have either failed to link to care or have been in care but then fallen out or not been retained in care, <coughs> such that among those on therapy, only between 19 and 28% have achieved viral suppression. So beyond the individual health uh, benefits that are not being uh, achieved by the majority by not achieving viral suppression, also, the idea of the population benefits of viral suppression and treatment as prevention aren't going to work when we only have about one in four persons living with the virus having a suppressed viral load. There's a lot of virus out there circulating community viral load. Uh, and that these earlier steps on this cascade, you know, the challenges in diagnosis and keeping in, uh, known positive folks in care as the greatest challenges that we face. And I think this is a really powerful image. It's gotten a lot of attention, but there's also a few shortcomings to this, this image. And I think to me, there's a couple of them. It gives us a 40,000 foot view. It gives us the big picture, the population level of these different pillars. But what you lose sight of are the individuals, the people at each step that are falling off. And I think for all of us providing care, it's very personal. And you lose that, that individual, you know, individuals. And, and when we think about this cascade type picture, which is more epi kind of population based, um, the second thing that is not really captured here is this is a bi-directional relationship, right? Someone doesn't necessarily test positive, get linked to care, retained in care, get on therapy, become suppressed and stay suppressed. There's lots of folks who get to the far right but move backwards, and this kind of picture doesn't capture that. It's a, it's a snapshot at a moment in time where each of these steps is much more dynamic. And I want to share a case of someone who I met earlier this year I think that exemplifies just you know who are the people that are falling through the cracks and the idea that it's not a one-way street. This kind of cascade really is bi-directional and change our thinking a bit from this cascade to more of a continuum, a more fluid and dynamic process. So this is a 21-year-old gentleman was diagnosed with HIV in, in June of 2009, got into care quickly. So by August 2009, came in, started antiviral therapy, and had a great response to treatment. So here's his HIV viral load and CD4 count. So August 09 had a CD a viral load of 115,000, you know, diagnosed late with CD4 count of 78. Started therapy within one month, great response, viral load's down to 384, good bump in a CD4 count. A few months later, comes back in, virus is now suppressed, you know, robust increased CD4 count. Again, three months later, here we are, virus is still suppressed and a CD4 count of you know, approaching 500. So, great start. He's moved really rapidly across that cascade once what diagnosis happened to get linked, to be coming to visits, to get on therapy, here to therapy, and achieve viral suppression. And then things got complicated. So started having more sporadic visits, was then lost to care. 
re-engaged after a really long gap in care. So I first met him earlier this year. And when I met him, he had cough, weight loss, night sweats, and numerous KS lesions on his skin. I mean, something we don't see nearly as much anymore as we did 20 years ago. Um, and here's what happened. So we left off back in, in February of 2010, about six months into treatment, suppressed viral load, and high CD4 count, then missed a bunch of visits and came back in nine months later. So I had a nine-month gap in care. His viral load was about 23,000. His CD4 drop, count dropped to 248, and then just disappeared for two years. So could not reach him, contact numbers, um, and you know was just lost to care. Uh, came back in in November of 2012, had a lab-only visit. You could see his labs had really deteriorated. Uh, didn't actually make it from that lab visit into a medical visit and came back and saw me for the first time in April, now with a spiral load of 200,000, a CD4 count of 64. And here's his chest radiograph. So, you know, we, we'd hoped this was pneumocystis, um, ended up on bronchoscopy being KS. So this was pulmonary KS. Back in antiretrovirals, going through a chemotherapy, but just a really tough course. I mean, a very difficult illness, very difficult disease. And I think what this case demonstrates to me in part, you know, from that cascade is here's someone who in six months did a great job and went all the way across, but they clearly moved backwards, you know, from being retained, started missing visits. Um, and, and it is about these individuals that we're trying to take care of and understanding what happened, why did this happen, and talking with him, couldn't get a good answer. I mean, was he overwhelmed? Was there stigma? Really couldn't, you know, vocalize why, after getting off to a good start, fell out of care. But I think these are the kind of folks that we see you know, more than we'd like to, and the focus of the work that I've done on engagement and care. So I think in getting this, this shifting our thinking from this cascade mentality, these population-based pillars, to this continuum is moving down to more individuals. And HRSA has described this continuum of care, ranging from those not in care to those who are fully engaged in care. And we see this bi-directional arrow. It's not a one-way street, you know, as we saw with that cascade of folks just moving along. So ranging from those who are unaware of their status, who test positive and are aware, might be receiving other medical care, but not HIV care, have entered care but dropped out, kind of like my patient. They're in and out or the infrequent user to those that are fully engaged in care. And the idea of individuals can move back and forth across this spectrum. Just because someone has achieved full engagement, is on therapy and suppressed, folks drop out of care for a whole host of reasons. And we have to kind of be mindful of that and measuring that and understanding. And the way that our team uh, for the last decade has operationalized this is through what we call this blueprint, um, which has the same steps, you know, but instead of being I think that the HRSA continuum is more qualitative. This is more quantitative, defining the steps. And we could measure each of these steps and look at how we're doing. Um, similar to the cascade, but what's different is that there's identifying it's not a simple linear pathway. There's bidirectional relationships, and that different steps will influence each other that are further along on the earlier steps. So after diagnosis, someone has to be linked to care. And that retention in care is necessary for receiving therapy, but also that receipt of therapy influences if folks stay retained in care. So a number of studies both domestically and internationally, in terms of why did someone drop out of care, I didn't receive treatment. I, I was told I didn't need medicines. I was doing well. Um, so that would be a reason to fall out of care. Retention and art adherence have been associated with one another, and ultimately health outcomes, be it viral load, CD4, quality of life, any range of health outcomes. And what's here explicitly, it's implicit in the cascade, is the idea of re-engagement in care. So it's in dashed lines. It isn't a necessary step. But we have to have a plan for how do we monitor those individuals who fall out of care, you know, identify that they're out of care and bring them back in. And there's a whole host of reasons and settings. I think you know, beyond those that just fall out of clinic, hospitals, emergency departments, corrections, really, really important settings when we think about individuals re-engaging and reconnecting to care um, require special um, initiatives. 
and superimposed upon is we now have goals for the first time through the National HIV AIDS Strategy. So released in 2010, uh, an update this summer with executive order for this continuum of care initiative, so even more attention on this continuum of care. But these national goals by 2015 of increasing status awareness from the you know, roughly 80% to 90%, improving linkage to care within three months of diagnosis from 65 to 85%, incredibly ambitious goal, but I think sets the bar for us uh, as, a, as a benchmark. Um, among Ryan White clients in continuous care, improving that from the current estimate of 73 to 80%. And in terms of viral load suppression, increasing the proportion with suppressed viral load among all diagnosed persons by 20%. So really you know, ambitious considering um, how many folks diagnosed are not suppressed right now, but uh, important goals for us to try to achieve you know, nationally, but also regionally and locally and understanding where we stand. And you know, this to me is just one framework we've used to study this. This is a socio-ecological framework and says, whether you look at the cascade, the HRSA continuum, our blueprint, there's a lot of layers that influence why someone goes from acquiring infection to go through testing, getting linked to care, being retained, and being on therapy. So at the individual level, there's predisposing factors. There's fixed factors that might identify high-risk groups. We can't change them necessarily, but tells us younger individuals, female, certain racial ethnic groups, these are higher risk groups that have challenges across this continuum. The enabling factors are two broad categories. So there are structural things, housing, transportation, food security. If those basic needs aren't met, the idea of someone testing and being in care, much more challenging. Transportation, structural, tangible things where in the absence of very hard to go across this continuum, aside from those structural factors, the more psychosocial factors, things like stigma and distrust, and resiliency and coping skills. So you know, much different to think about those psychosocial factors versus those structural factors when working with individuals and identifying what are the barriers someone has. Very different approaches and interventions based upon those two different categories. And then perceived needs. So for a lot of persons, the idea is I seek healthcare when I am sick. If my CD4 count is high and I am not on therapy, I don't seek health care. So the idea of understanding what someone's needs are to understand the educational efforts to kind of talk to them about why it's important to you know, seek testing and to, to be in care. Beyond individuals, there's relationships. And relationships can be with in our personal lives, spouses, partners, significant others, friends, but also with our healthcare workers, our social worker, our nurse, doctor, nurse practitioner, peer mentor. You know, these relationships will all influence how someone might seek out some of the testing and different behaviors on retention, engagement, and care. The next layer, community. How does community level stigma, for example, influence someone's desire to seek testing or these different behaviors? For us, we have some patients in Alabama that drive three and four hours because in their small town, there's one HIV clinic on Main Street. And if I walk into that clinic, everyone in my small community knows I have HIV. Therefore, I'm gonna drive three hours. And just the barriers that places in terms of you know, the logistics of getting three hours away and getting um, um, but how at a community level do things like stigma influence individuals' decisions and behaviors and create barriers or facilitators to achieve all these different steps? At a system level, how is it set up? You know, is housing in one place, legal services somewhere else, food somewhere else, medical services somewhere else? So I have all these different needs that will help me get across this care continuum, but is the healthcare system so disjointed that it's really hard for me to get all of my needs met, the things that are gonna influence my ability to stay in care? And at the policy level, I think historically, things like the Ryan White waiting list. If I'm a poor person in Alabama and I hear there's a waiting list for medications, what is my incentive to go to medical visits if my thought is I can't receive medications? You know, now we have the Affordable Care Act coming around. How will that change Ryan White? How will that influence someone's ability to navigate these different steps? Um, and I think you know, the importance of this is just thinking you know, more broadly about 
it's very easy to see this cascade and these pillars of this continuum, but there's a lot of things, bless you, that, that influence someone moving across these steps. And I think, you know, both in terms of studying barriers and facilitators, but also targets for intervention. If we can change systems and policy, the impact, tremendous. You know, we still have to do individual interventions, but each of these layers offers opportunities for interventions to try to improve how folks engage in, in HIV care. So through a series of studies, um, largely descriptive over the last many years, have found you know, these are factors consistently associated with worse care engagement. And engagement, I mean linkage, retention, re-engagement, it's the three steps of engagement and care. Younger age, consistently, females more than males, racial ethnic minorities, both African Americans and Latinos, domestically have had greater challenges with care engagement. Individuals lacking health insurance, likely as a proxy for socioeconomic status. Um, with mental illness, typically depression is studied, sometimes PTSD. Um, substance abuse, active substance abuse is a barrier to care engagement, and unmet need for supportive services. I mean, really simple. If I need housing and transportation, I don't have them, it's hard for me to get to care. If I provide those things, this is a decade ago, HRSA did these SPINS projects. If I have those things, I'm going to be better engaged in care. I mean, so really, you know, simple thinking about identifying unmet needs, providing services as a very tangible, concrete way to improve care engagement. The implications are both at the individual level and the population level. So, you know, again, a number of studies showing at the individual level, and it's all common sense, things that we all know that are seeing patients, but there's data to quantify and, and, and demonstrate this, that individuals with, with poor care engagement have delayed receipt of antiretrovirals and worse adherence, worse CD4 and viral load outcomes, more likely to have the emergence of resistance mutations, and increased risk for clinical events, including mortality, so that direct links between someone's visit attendance, their linkage to care, and long-term hard clinical outcomes. At a population level, I'll show you some data that we have looking at um, how poor engagement uh, contributes to healthcare disparities, mediates and contributes to healthcare disparities, but also the role in transmission. Again, the 052 study showing the impact of art in reducing tra uh, uh, transmission, but also Lisa Metz did a nice study with the artist folks looking at individuals who are better engaged, coming to more visits, were more likely to reduce risk transmission behavior. So the idea of, by being better connected to the healthcare system, being less likely to engage in behaviors, being less likely to have virus, you know, those two elements contributing to new infections. So I'm gonna talk very briefly about testing and linkage to care and then move on to the engagement, the linkage, retention, re-engagement for the majority of the rest of the talk. So the goal from the national strategy is increasing awareness to 90% among those who have acquired or already have the infection. Um, undiagnosed HIV has been called a hidden threat. And Irene Hall updated these numbers uh, from, from a classic Gary Marks paper showing that transmission is three to seven times higher in the undiagnosed versus the diagnosed. And this is really important, that next number, that the 20%, so the one in five persons who were positive and unaware account for half of new infections. So really important that we still focus our efforts on testing, identifying those folks who are undiagnosed, because half of new infections you know, are being ascribed to those individuals. So identification, getting in care, risk reduction counseling, treatment can help reduce those new infections. In the last few years, some qualitative work coming out, looking at the influence of testing, um, um, the, the testing experience on linkage to care. And again, really common sense things, but you know, just to see the data is helpful, that the rapport, the information quality, and the counseling provided influence folks getting into care from a positive test. So there was a CDC Never in Care study, did some qualitative work in three cities with persons who tested positive but didn't get into care within nine to 12 months. And a lot of the stories and the, the kind of, you know, the quotes were things like, you know, I met someone different every time. It was like an assembly line. You know, someone did this step and someone else did that step. So I didn't feel like I had good rapport with the counselors. It was just very disjointed. 
um, active versus per passive referral for services. Again, really simple. Instead of here are some phone numbers, here are some clinics, good luck. I'm gonna take a more active role in helping you get into care. Can I call the clinic for you? Can I accompany you to that first visit? Um, being better associated with linkage to care. Um, other important findings with delayed linkage from community settings. So in contrast to the medical setting where someone tests positive and is right there where the medical clinic is, in testing in community settings, greater barriers in making that next step going from wherever you are in the community to getting into care. Um, I think it's critically important that we do testing in community settings. A lot of folks don't access the healthcare system, so our ED-based programs, our STI clinic-based testing programs don't reach them. But it's really important to think if we're working with a CBO or ASO doing testing in the community, there's going to be additional barriers and challenges from going to, from that community setting into our medical care setting, just having that as part of our planning. And this is kind of a sobering study. So this is Katie Lesko as a, as a grad student at UNC with a systematic review of meta-regression. Looked at 170,000 patients who were newly diagnosed between 91 and 2011 and asked the simple question of what was the initial CD4 count when someone first presented for medical care? This is all domestic studies. It's in the US and also in, in Europe, actually. And the CD4 count was around 300 and increased by 1.5 cells per year. So over 20 years, we really have made very, very little progress in terms of identifying persons early. We still have a majority of folks coming in well below guidelines for treatment, um, you know, around 300 cells, 230 cells. So this idea of, you know, there's this long period of time when folks acquire infection until we're finally making diagnosis and that our testing efforts, we need to think about innovative approaches. How are we going to find folks earlier? You know, when, when someone's coming in below 300, clearly a lot of years to be living with this infection, potentially transmitting infection, um, so a lot of work to be done still on the testing front. We can't forget that, I think, as we focus on the, the later steps. So I want to shift my focus now on this 50%. And, and to me, it's, you know, is the glass half empty or half full? And this, to me, is the greatest for HIV, the greatest challenge we have domestically. It is the greatest contemporary challenge, this 50% of folks who are known positive but not in care, and understanding why that is, and reaching out and identifying and linking them into care. So going to shift now and talk about some of the work that we've done at UAV at the 1917 clinic um, and talk about some of what we've experienced in these last many years. So when I first got to, back to UAV in 2006, we had this problem of a lot of new patient no-shows. So providers, all of our good ideas come from providers saying a lot of our new patients are no-shows. They're not coming for their visits. Uh, this is Jim Raper, who's a nurse practitioner, our clinic director, um, and really helped lead this effort. So this was a simple study. Say all patients calling the clinic over these two years to schedule a visit, how many of them didn't make it into care and found that about a third of them, so providers' kind of intuition was right. About a third of patients who called the clinic didn't attend a visit within six months. And one thing that jumped out at us was the average time. So from that phone call until that first visit was 28 days, was four weeks' time. And how much happens in someone's life from picking up the phone, calling the clinic, and four weeks later, and how much did having to wait those four weeks contribute to the fact that a lot of our new patients were no-shows and not making it into the clinic? So when someone calls, we get very basic information. We could look at some of the characteristics. Um, what we saw was younger patients, there was a trend. Compared to white males, 80% of whom made it in for a visit, minority males in our setting, mostly African-American, uh, white females, minority females were much less likely to get into care, get linked to our clinic. Compared to those with private insurance, 83% of whom made it into care, much lower with public insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, or those who were uninsured. And the, the time, the length of days from that call until that visit, the longer that time was, the less likely someone was to get into care. Um, so this has kind of led us to then have an intervention. And part of what I love about the research that I do is 
as a health service researcher, it's very grounded in clinical care, but also feeds back into clinical care. So it kind of goes hand in hand. So I get to UAB in August. This paper, you know, this very simple brief report is done, is accepted in December. And by January, we have a new program, a clinic-based program that is going to try to address this no-show phenomenon called Project Connect. So client-oriented, new patient navigation to encourage connection to treatment was this new program. And this is Malcolm Marver, who was our clinic chaplain and our health educator who spearheaded this effort. So starting in the fall, brought together a team of providers, social workers, nurses, patients, all the key players to say, we have this problem. 31% of folks aren't getting into care. 28 days is the wait. What are we going to do about it? And, and this connect kind of emerged from that. So it was launched in January 2007. The first big thing was this 28 days was way too long. So we said, we're going to add this new orientation visit within five days of someone's phone call. Um, and it's been coordinated by social work services. So really importantly, in terms of kind of cost and how we did this, historically, someone would come in for a first visit spend an hour with their social worker, an hour with their medical providers. Um, so we said, you know what, let's just uncouple those. We're going to move the social work visit to this orientation visit, move it up within five days of the phone call. The median time is three days. Still have the wait for provider visits. We don't have capacity to do it sooner, but uncouple these. We don't have to add necessarily new FTE to provide these services. Um, um, and we do an interview, a questionnaire, and baseline lab. So we ask about some of those factors across those, you know, those multi-layers in terms of transportation, housing, disclosure, intimate partner violence. So really kind of try to assess someone's context of where they live, who they're living with, and what barriers might be there in terms of them now going from orientation to staying in care and having good health outcomes. So then now when I see someone for a first visit, it's incredible. I open the EMR, I have this connect note, and I have so much information about the context of my patient, who they live with, where they live, you know, um, their transportation, housing, as well as their lab. So my first visit now is so much more meaningful as a healthcare provider. And doing a pre-post analysis, so it's not randomized, temporal trends can play a role, but what we saw was a drop in the new patient no-show from 31% down to 18%, or flipped around, went from 70% of patients getting into care after calling to 82%. This is now a quality indicator for us, and it's ranged between 82 and 90% and been stable ever since 2007. So it was relatively flat, about 70% for a while, jumped up to about you know between 85% or so, and it's been stable for a long time. So a relatively simple structural intervention seems to, in our setting, really have helped us with getting new patients linked into our clinic. So the next study we did was focusing on early missed visits and just asked a very simple question. It said, for all newly diagnosed patients coming to a first visit at our clinic, um, did a missed visit in the first year, a no-show visit, not someone called and canceled, someone you know, just didn't turn up, um, have an implications for long-term mortality. And I think you know, the interest here was just the, the, the experience among providers, how hard that first year is. A lot of patients come in, describe feeling overwhelmed, you know, just the complexity, that case I shared earlier, just even folks that get off to a good start can really feel overwhelmed and be challenging in those first you know, several months, 12 months of care. And what we found was, um, a pretty striking result. So among patients that had at least one no-show visit in the first year, there was a three-fold increase in long-term risk for death. So there was a similar effect of having had a no-show to having a CD4 count below 200. We also saw an effect for age, and this was controlling for viral load, starting antiviral therapy, age, race, sex, all those other things across the bottom. So this no-show visit you know, really had a strong effect. And, and the message to us was, this is likely not causally responsible not suggesting that because someone had this one or two no-show visits, they had worse long-term mortality, but as providers, this is our first warning sign. 
So when we're seeing someone in that first year of care and they're missing visits, they're telling us for some reason, either about them, their living situation, there's some reason they're at higher risk for worse long-term outcomes. So we should use this kind of early no-show as a warning sign of this is someone who might need more probing, more information, more case management, more intervention. Um, and and you know, I think a very important and powerful indicator um, and other studies since in Kaiser Permanente and many other settings have replicated these results, have shown that these early no-shows, dose-response relationship, are really a powerful indicator to us that something is, is you know, going on that places this individual at higher risk for worse long-term outcomes. So this is just to talk about retention and care and how do you measure retention and care. And again, I mentioned this has been a great interest to me. I'm sorry you can't see the top patient that well. But compared to linkage, linkage is dichotomous. It happens or it doesn't. Yes versus no. You put 90 days on it. Math, you know, it, it's harder to, to measure retention. It's longitudinal. Patients have different number of visits at different intervals over different time periods. And it you know, goes on continuously from diagnosis. So this is meant to be an example showing four different patients over a 12-month period divided into four three-month intervals with these check boxes being arrived visits and the X boxes being no-show visits. And it's just showing these different patterns. You can see very different patterns of visit you know, behavior over this 12-month period. And in the literature, a number of approaches have been used to measure what does it mean to be retained. Um, so some of these missed visits, I, I showed you that kind of no-show as a dichotomous or as a count measure. So either you know, yes versus no over interval of time or counting the total number. Appointment adherence or visit adherence, I think very familiar to us, like medication adherence. What proportion of scheduled visits did someone attend? So the first patient came to four out of five visits, or 80%. The second patient came to two out of six, 33%, and so on. The idea of visit constancy or consistency is saying, did someone come at least once per interval time? So I don't care how many times you missed. I don't care about your no-show visits. In each three-month interval, is there at least one checkbox? Did you come at least once per interval time? And you can see, for example, patient C had no no-shows. They just didn't happen to have a visit in that third interval. So their constancy level is 75%, despite being 100% adherence. Gaps in care, I think very familiar to us clinically. Did some interval of time pass between visits? Commonly six months is used, sometimes longer. Um, you can see that patient B um, you know, had a gap in care. They had that middle period where they had six months without a visit. Patient D had a gap. They never closed. They had six months between attended visits. And then the HRSA-HAB measure is actually now also an IOM core indicator. So it's a core indicator for attention and care is saying, over a 12-month period, did you have two visits that were attended that were more than 90 days apart is that indicator. So you could see that patients A, B, and C, despite very different profiles of visits, would all be considered a yes by the HRSA-HAB. They all came twice in 12 months, more than 90 days apart. And that patient D came twice, but in that same 90-day interval. So they'd be a HRSA-HAB no. So again, I think it's, it's something that's of great interest to me. But the idea of measuring retention is complex. A number of different approaches have been used. I want to share some data now just showing um, how, depending on what you use as a measure, you might get very different results and very different inference drawn. <clears throat> so to break it down more simply, there's kind of two broad categories of being retained. There are those that include missed visits, those no-show visits, either as a count or dichotomously, or visit adherence includes missed visits, and then there's these kept visit measures. So the constancy, the gap, and the have doesn't include missing. All it includes is attended visits in terms of calculating them. It's two broad categories, missed versus kept. And this is data from a six-site study. So this is six sites, CDC, uh, 10,000 patients. We're one of these six sites. And just descriptively saying, if we used all these measures, how would we classify individuals over a 12-month period? 
what we saw was the average number of no-shows was 1.5 over the 12-month period. About a third of patients had zero no-shows. Um, so if we use that as saying to be retained, you have to have zero no-shows, you'd say a third of patients were retained. And you can see the numbers with one, two, and three and more no-shows. Visit adherence, the average was 69%. Again, about a third were 100% adherence. So if your measure of retention is 100% visit adherence, you'd say a third were retained. This constancy measure, you know, you can see the different levels. So half of patients came, we used a four-month interval. Did you come at least once every four months? So if you say you have to come at least once every four months, you'd say half of patients were retained. Very different from what you saw the other one. In terms of not having a gap in care, so two-thirds didn't have a gap, um, if you look at them. And the HRSA-HAB, which is kind of a looser measure, over 75% achieved that measure would be retained. So the point of this is the same 10,000 patients, same 10,000 patients, same visits they have, if you classify them based upon no-show, adherence, constancy, gap, or HRSA-HAB, you might say a third are retained or 75% are retained. And just the idea that there's variability across these measures. And I think as there's more and more search in this area, being really cautious in interpreting findings, because sometimes someone's reporting on one indicator, someone else on something else, and when you can see with these same patients, you get widely different results depending on which measure you chose to report upon. So the next step was saying, let's compare these measures. How similar or different are they? And what we found was in the rank correlation, the missed visit face measures, highly, highly correlated, correlation coefficients 0.83 to 0.85. The kept visit measures, that constancy gap and HRSA have, highly correlated 0.72 to 0.77. Interestingly, among the pure missed visit measures and kept visit measures, much lower correlation coefficients. This is the first sign to us of, might these measures be capturing something different? They aren't that highly correlated. Um, and the, the visit adherence is kind of a hybrid. It includes both missing and keeping and kind of fell in between. So then said, among patients looking at all these different measures, what was the association with viral suppression? At the end of 12 months, was someone virally suppressed? And what we found was all of them were associated with viral suppression. So despite measuring something different, they all predicted very strongly viral load suppression. And our, our interpretation of this was there's no gold standard. I mean, these things are each measuring something important but maybe different from each other that all correlate with viral load suppression. So as the next step, I wanted to focus on disparities in retention and care. So a lot of studies, including the one I showed you earlier from our site, have seen disparities in retention, worse performance among younger patients, females versus males, African-American patients. So a bunch of different models used here. So looking at the parameter estimates, so focusing on the green means better retention, the red means worse retention. So focusing on the missed visit measures, again, as a broad category, missed visits or appointment adherence, you would say older patients are better retained. Males compared to females are better retained. African-Americans compared to white patients are worse retained. And you'd write one paper and talk about, you know, there's disparities in retention and care. Same patients, same data. You fast forward and say constancy gap versus HAB, you see the same findings for age. So still you see that older patients are better retained, but the effects for males versus females, gone. The effects for African-Americans versus whites, gone. So you know, this question of, are there disparities in retention? And part of it is, it depends on how you define it. This idea of these missing measures versus these kept measures are giving us very different information. And to us, really has raised the question of, are they capturing different aspects of retention and care? And I think that they are. I really think that there are different constructs of what it means to be retained. And the idea of missing versus keeping is actually giving us different pieces of it. They're both important. They both matter. But I think these data suggest there's probably something distinct about you know, those, the missing capture versus the keeping capture. And this is the most recent data that we have um, from that same study, those 10,000 patients in the CDC retention and care study. And what it shows is that 
Um, we did see disparities in viral load of suppressions. So there was you know, more suppression among whites versus African Americans. But when you stratified by visit adherence category, you said among a visit adherence category, what percentage of patients were suppressed? And the kind of blue line is for African American patients, the orangish line is for white patients. In a given adherence category, these lines are superimposable. So there was more you know, visit non-adherence among African Americans, but when you categorize and stratify by category, suggesting you know, if we can improve retention and care by visit adherence, might this be a way to overcome healthcare disparities? So we see disparities, we see among category similar outcomes. If we have interventions that can improve retention and care among African Americans, might we see some of these health disparities in viral load and clinical outcomes get attenuated? So in the last third, I want to focus on the evidence-based interventions that are out there. And I have the, the really good fortune of working with an incredible team on guidelines that were published um, a year ago, May. And this is the first time we had evidence-based guidelines for linkage and retention in care. Um, we think about we've had treatment guidelines forever, right, for a long time. We've had hundreds of trials comparing regimen ABC to XYZ, but hadn't had guidelines for the earlier steps of linkage, retention, medication adherence. Um, to be included, had to be either a randomized control trial or an observational study with a comparison group. Um, we only had five recommendations for entry and retention, so I've often said this is an area where the service has outpaced the science. Anyone in the field has known the challenges in terms of testing and linkage and retention, but the science has really lagged behind in terms of studying interventions. Um, these guidelines also include emphasis on special populations and also recommendations for future research. And the, the you know, each guidelines have different grading schemas. This one was the quality of evidence was one through four, as you can see up there, RCT with no uh, limitations down to obvious studies with limitations. But for the strength, we wanted to focus on who should receive this, you know, who should get this. So despite the quality of evidence, should almost everyone get this, most patients or, or some patients. So the idea of based upon resources, based upon time commitment, you might, you know, help us think about someone, you know, A versus B versus C. And in terms of the uh, entry and retention in care, the linkage and retention in care, the five recommendations, one was for systematic monitoring of entry into care, another was systematic monitoring of retention in care. So two of the five are not interventions, just saying how important it is to systematically monitor someone testing positive, getting linked to care, being retained in care. Uh, the interventions were strength-based case management is the artist model, uh, outreach for those who are not engaged within the first six months, and the peer paraprofessional patient navigator. So a lot of interest in peer navigation, patient navigation, born out of the cancer literature and kind of having someone who's a peer or near peer help navigate through the healthcare system. So in terms of monitoring, I think this is often overlooked how, how important monitoring and, and how hard it is. Um, there are correlations between how you monitor and, and biomarkers and outcomes, which is why they were recommended. It was two way, so it was pretty good evidence and for everyone. Something that is increasingly being done is integrating data systems. So using our surveillance data, publicly reported Western blots, but also CD4s and viral loads being used increasingly as a proxy for someone being in care and care visits with our clinic data and claims data. So that if you can integrate data systems, so surveillance gives us part of the picture, our clinic data part of the picture, claims data. If we really want to understand at an individual level, among individuals who tested positive, who is linked, who is retained, those that fell out of care at the clinic, are they in care somewhere else? You know, surveillance could help us with that sometimes. So the idea of truly monitoring this systematically is challenging and probably is best done by integrating data systems across different entities. Um, and these guidelines said multiple measures are out there. The HRSA have, again, domestically, and the IOM indicator is these two visits in 12 months, 90 days apart. And to me, I spend some time focusing on monitoring because to me, it's the foundation of the feedback loop. If we can't systematically at an individual level monitor 
individuals across this continuum or cascade, we can't possibly intervene effectively and measure our success of intervention. We've got to be able to say, you know, who is at each of these different steps to help us, you know, I think at a big picture level, you know, information education. So in our community, there's our greatest challenge with, you know, linkage to care versus retention in care. We have limited resources. Where do we put them? Let's do something to integrate our service delivery around testing and linkage to care and monitor the outcomes. But I think this monitoring piece, while it sounds simple, is incredibly complex and challenging. There's legal issues, ethical issues, you know, HIPAA legal issues. But the idea of trying to share information across public health and clinical settings as a really critical way to do this, and it's done very well in some settings. There's great models in D.C., King County, Washington. In Louisiana, the Lafie system is this incredible exchange of health information between the public health system and the LSU Medical Center, so they really, you know, can talk to each other. And I always say health informatics is an important piece of this, but there's always a human element. I think a lot of times you hear about, oh, the EMR, the health exchange is going to fix everything, and it's just not true. I think all of us know that, that there's always a human element. It's about people communicating, working together, using informatics as a tool, but they're only a tool to help us get the job done. In terms of strength-based case management, this is the artist study. This is the only still randomized trial to improve linkage or retention. It's amazing to me, the only randomized trial we have for these huge steps. Half of folks are not in care. We have one randomized trial in the literature. It was a multi-site comparing linkage case management versus standard of care to improve entry into care. Important to distinguish linkage case management from medical case management. So linkage, brief, you know, up to five visits in 90 days, brief, intense, not the long-term kind of medical case management. The goal, getting from point A to point B, getting from new diagnosis and community, connecting into medical clinic. It's based upon empowerment and self-efficacy, asking clients, what are your strengths and assets? So here you have a life-changing diagnosis. How can you go from, you know, now being positive in the community to getting linked into medical care? A very good effect size was 78% versus 60% linked to care. You know, number needed to treat about five. So, I mean, a really effective intervention. And a lot of effort by CDC putting in resources to ramp this up. A lot of trainings available on this. How do you do the artist model? Modification of the artist model in a lot of different settings. But this is really the best evidence we have in terms of linkage to care for folks newly diagnosed. Outreach. And these next two interventions are based upon our recommendations on the HRSA SPINS initiative. So this is the Special Projects of National Significance. There's a series of studies, observationally comparators, comparators, looked at biological and behavioral outcomes. And again, such a paucity of evidence. So this, this is based on one study, 104 patients. This is this entire recommendation for outreach. What they saw, though, was with intensive outreach that there was better retention in care and viral load suppression among those considered underserved by the health system, including youth, women, those with mental health and substance abuse disorders. Um, so again, a lot of efforts on outreach. Um, in the practice community, folks know what this is, but from the science community, very little study validating what is outreach, how do you do it, and measuring the effectiveness of it. So I think there's gaps between practice and science that have limited kind of implementation and uptake for a lot of these interventions. And finally is the peer navigators or patient navigators. Same SPINS initiative, four studies with 1,100 patients, and retention improved from 64% to 79%, viral load suppression 50% increase um, among those in the navigation arms. So patient navigation, and again, a lot of interest in doing this model. I'm amazed around the country how differently folks define peer navigators, who they are, what their role is, training, reporting, supervision, paid versus unpaid. Very similar to community health workers, been used for a lot of other chronic disease management. 
um, but I think an important modality, but some unique challenges in terms of how do peers and near peers integrate within the routine traditional healthcare system and what is their role. So, um, but a really important proven approach. So we're gonna close with an, a new intervention that was part of this study, um, the CDC retention and care intervention. And it was CDC and HRSA together, which was pretty cool. And this is the first time I think that I can think of where CDC and HRSA did a study together. It wasn't the CDC or SPINS, it was coming together with six sites. It was us in Birmingham, uh, there was Boston University, Brooklyn, Baltimore, Miami, and Houston were the six sites where we did this intervention study. And there was there's two phases to it. So phase one was really simple, this clinic-wide intervention. We're gonna create this clinic culture around retention and care, put up waiting rooms uh, and exam room posters, give brochures to patients. And we had a training to say all, all providers, or all clinic staff give brief messages about coming to visits and being retained in care. So when you first come into clinic through your visit, through when you leave phlebotomy and go out to the lab, um, you know, great to see you today. You know, glad you're here today. Just very brief, encouraging messages about retention and care and did a, a pre-post evaluation. The second phase was more intensive. It was a patient-centered behavioral intervention. So it focused on individuals who um, um, had shown poor retention in care, had shown a pattern of worse retention, so focusing on those that were um, needing more assistance, enhanced personal contact. So there was uh, health interventionists who would call seven days before visits, two days before visits for reminder calls, not the robocall, not a random person, but me, your health coach, your health interventionist, you know, calling with reminders. Uh, very brief, two sessions for information education around three different modules. So there was a risk screener identifying needs for problem solving skills. Um, so problem solving being, you know, I've got an appointment next week. My child has, you know, some activity next week. I got to figure out my daycare or some, you know, someone that could watch my child or, you know, so I can get to my clinic visit, provider communication skills, organization skills. So do you have a calendar? Do you have a smartphone? Do you use a calendar? Some ba very basic, simple organizational skills to help remember coming to visits. And we did a randomized control trial for phase two. So the theme of the campaign was stay connected for your health. We can make a difference, come to all your appointments, your health depends on it. Um, use this kind of seesaw to help with the CD4 and viral load. So, you know, folks getting confused, which one is high, which one is low. But you know, messages, research shows keeping your appointments can improve your health, help you live longer. Um, these are the pamphlets and they were tailored for the clinics, but you know, just kind of giving some information about how do you stay connected, your health depends on it, it's important to come to your visits, you know, even when you don't feel sick, um, and you know, kind of the importance of what do you do if you can't make it or how do you remember. So, and this is again a pre-post evaluation. What we saw overall was a modest improvement, but a 3% relative improvement was seen. So 3% overall in terms of the visit adherence measure. Um, bigger effects among new patients or re-engaging patients, 7.6%, and among those with detectable viral loads or with CD4 counts that were lower. So, you know, very simple, low-cost intervention. There's a cost piece that's being submitted now for publication. This was published in CID last October, but this really relatively simple, you know, clinic-based culture change led to modest improvements, especially among some important priority populations. The phase two data has not yet been published. It's under submission now. But there was two arms of standard of care and two intervention arms that performed similarly, so I'll show them together. But what we saw was an improvement both in that constancy, so that kept visit, did you come once every, every four months measure, and the visit adherence. There were improvements in the intervention arm versus standard of care arm in this study. Um, one important finding was the importance of a dose response between successful reminder calls and folks being retained in care. So the more reminder calls that were successful, the more likely someone was to have better retention in care. 
And some of the subgroups, I think some important findings came out so that there was no effect among youth and the, the intervention worked among those 40 and over, but not among younger individuals. So this intervention didn't seem to be enough in that group. Uh, worked both in men and women. Did not seem to have effects in those who were privately insured, but did in those who were publicly insured or had Ryan White or uninsured. So coming back to those healthcare disparities and the groups that are most struggling with retention and care seemed to work best in those groups. Also seemed to have better effects in African-Americans and Hispanics relative to white patients. So again, thinking about this intervention, you know, had some effects overall, but especially in some subpopulation subgroups who are, who are facing the greatest challenges in retention and care. So hopefully a tool um, that might be helpful in certain groups. So in terms of this, again, this is just um, one study was published, second study is under review right now. But the clinic-wide phase one had a modest increase in visit adherence, especially in new patients, those with low CD4s, high viral loads, and important groups to try to keep in care. And that the more behavioral intervention, the one-on-one -on -one enhanced personal contact, improved both a missed and kept visit measure, the adherence and constancy. There was exposure response with successful contacts, and a notable uh, impact in the publicly insured, the uninsured, and among African Americans. So again, with those healthcare disparities, this intervention seemed to particularly work in groups who are experiencing greater challenges, both with, with retention, but also the more longer-term health outcomes. Um, did not work in youth, did not work among those with unmet needs and substance abuse disorders. So, um, you know, so in certain subgroups, we'll clearly need more than this simple two-session reminder call intervention uh, to reach them. And we didn't see an effective skill modules at 12 months, but that's kind of for the future evaluation with longer-term follow-up. So to summarize, I think we have some time for some, some questions and discussion. I think you know these data show, and we all know this from our practices and then our, is that engagement impacts individual and public health. So the importance of engagement and care, both for individuals, but also for populations and prevention. Um, monitoring is foundational and data integration is key. So I think you know it's very easy to say we're gonna monitor, but how do you do it successfully beyond one agency across a jurisdiction is really important in terms of uh, thinking about intervention and how we do things. Um, how do we define and measure what it means to be engaged and retained? I hope that those data about missing and keeping, you know, give you some pause in terms of what does it mean to be retained and that we're capturing different information. I've had some colleagues, some good discussions about what does engagement mean? Is just linkage, retention, re-engagement visits really being engaged? Isn't this about patient activation or patient empowerment? So what does it mean to be an engaged patient? So doing some work around, around what that means. Um, early retention, that case, lots of anecdotal experience, lots of studies. You know, those first 12 months from diagnosis to linkage to retention, such a vulnerable time. I think in terms of thinking about resources and where to focus can be a teachable moment. So how do we take someone coming into care and really kind of help transform that to a teachable moment, getting the self-care skills to manage HIV infection until we can get a cure? The prognostic value of a no-show visit, I think this is just really powerful. I mean, every study, study that looks at this, it's as powerful as CD4, viral load, anything else. So that when someone is not coming, not calling and canceling, I can't tell you what it's measuring, but I can tell you that it's really important. So that when folks are no-showing, really should tell us as an indicator, there's something going on, we need to do something about this. Uh, I hope some of the data has shown you that there's some reason to believe that engagement can be a target to address disparities. I think a lot of studies describe disparities. Very few actually show how, what can we do about it? What are some of the pathways we could intervene upon to hopefully attenuate and overcome? And I think you know, engagement and care clearly is one where if we can have, have effective interventions, reason to believe we might attenuate and overcome some of the well-described disparities. And then proven interventions, there aren't very many. There's a need for more science and practice-based evidence. What we know about is linkage case management, the artist model, outreach, navigation, this kind of clinic messaging and culture and the enhanced personal contact. 
I think what's important is a lot of the science in this field is not going to come from the traditional randomized controlled trial, but kind of more practice-based evidence. So that when we're doing initiatives, you know, for quality improvement or clinical initiatives, measuring it, evaluating it is really important. So it's going to be a really important part of the evidence base in helping us to identify what tools work and getting folks into care and keeping them in care. So a lot of folks to thank at the 1917 clinic. It's just an incredible place to work. Um, retention and care team, the adherence guideline team. Um, and thank you all for being here and for the invitation. It's really great to be here. You mentioned that you have a cost um, manuscript on the first phase of your intervention. I, I'm actually most curious about the cost of the second phase. Do you have any initial information about how yeah, we haven't started doing that work yet. No, it's really important. We haven't started doing that work yet. That feels we're, like we're going to not for sure. Expensive, yeah, no, no, we have it. We have it. And for the artist model, I can't remember. I mean, the artists, they, they, the artists didn't do really a very formal economic evaluation. They did kind of back of the envelope calculation, but it was like less than five thousand dollars per additional person linked to care. I mean, it was you know, out, you know, what would seem like even as a rough estimate, a very cost-effective approach when you think about you know, getting that one additional person to link to care, what it does for their health, but also for transmission. So that, that, that back of the envelope calculation was strictly dollars, didn't even account for by linking to care, what does this do for individual health and preventing new infections. Um, but it is planned to do a more sophisticated cost analysis for phase two of the, that intervention. Yes? I noticed that you so I have a couple of comments and questions. One has to do with um, now that HIV is such a very easily manageable illness with just one pill once a day. So we meet somebody new, put on a pill a day. Uh, it's really easy to go to every six or eight month visit with right. those people because a lot of them are young and healthy and really don't yeah. have any issues. And um, I'm a nurse, and so there's lots of other things that happen. Um, and and just what your experience with with taking these visits out longer and what you see as the pitfalls that might come with that or the advantages. And I guess another question I had is we have a, a we, I mean, we're a small program here and we have um, a longitudinal relationship, primary nurse and physician relationships with our patients so that we our patients know who their nurse is. Yeah. It's the same nurse for years and years. Um, and we have a bunch of people who are very engaged but don't come to appointments. So like someone who hasn't come for a year, but we're dealing with them on the telephone sure. all the time. And they may or may not be on medications. And we're really trying to listen to those psychosocial transportation rejection, feelings of rejection. I mean, they, they show up on a day that they don't have an appointment. Sure. They walk in. And so any thoughts about those kind of yeah, no, they're both really great questions and issues, I think, that are, that are universal and, and faced. And so we, we've been, for several years now, moving out to four- and six-month intervals. We have about a third of our patients on a six-month interval. Um, and some of those folks do well, and some don't do as well. I mean, you know, so I think it's really interesting. And part of the research that we're doing now is trying to help risk stratify. So if I'm sitting in clinic today, can I use some of the information available to me? to help identify someone, you know, high risk, medium risk, low risk to be lost to follow-up. So can I plug in a few different, you know, variables, depression score, you know, age, whatever it might be, CD4 viral load, and help risk stratify as a tool to help give us more information about who maybe is a three-month person versus a four-month person versus a six-month person. Because I do think right now, providers, I think, probably do a pretty good job of it. You know, we have, we have one study 
um, with that CDC retention and care study that showed that moving out to six-month interval, there weren't different outcomes versus the three and four months, but there's a lot of bias in terms of who's prescribed the intervals. Um, but I do think with this push towards extended intervals, um, while it works for many, there are potential pitfalls where someone maybe has relapse of mental illness, substance use, and things pop up. Um, so I don't have a good answer, but we're very interested in, in that from a research perspective. I mean, can we better identify so that we can better, you know, assign the interval um, in a way that is maybe tailored to someone's longer-term health risks? Um, in terms of the, it's a great question, this idea of, you know, they're engaged, they're calling, but not, not coming to care. This is some of the conversations I've been having with a lot of folks about what does it mean to be engaged? I mean, there's some patients, you know, you say, they don't come to visits, you know, they come twice, you know, once a year, but they keep filling their medicines, their virus is suppressed. By any of your measures, you're going to say they're not retained in care, and that's just wrong. I mean, they're engaged and they're suppressed. So, um, I mean, there's clearly that group. There's also the group that, that, you know, doesn't come on their scheduled visits, but comes for walk-in and urgent care and those things. Um, so I think it's a lot of the complexity and nuance of, of what does it mean to be engaged. Do you, do you continue to prescribe for somebody who, so I have a patient we, who's, who, who won't come to an appointment. It's a trans <laughs> woman who has horrible depression. I mean, we've yeah. tried so many interventions. And at 13 months, we sort of said, we can't We don't do it. We, once, once we reach, so I mean, I think we don't have a, a practice for our clinic. It's, it's very provider dependent. But you know, my practice is more than 12 months that, that's what I draw the line. I say, I say, this is the last prescription. You know, if I don't see you, here's your date, here's your time. If I don't see you, this is the last one. It's just how, the practice pattern. Like, if you seven days at the pharmacy, the pharmacist tells if you have an appointment next day, they, they have, they're holding an appointment for you next Thursday. Right. I mean, because it feels horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. So, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there are some <clears throat> briefly touched on this before. Some interesting. Uh, innovation that can take place in developing countries, and one of the things that we're working on with uh, Jody is a model called the Group of Six, which was started in Mozambique. Yeah. Familiar with. And, yeah. and um, this is in which a group are self-identified and identified to each other as being HIV infected and become responsible for each other's care. And to the extent of one of them going in every month getting medications for all the others and so forth. Yeah. And I wondered if that model had been tried in this country or your sense of it. It seems to be a model where there's responsibility for care and, and really in, in certain countries there's improved adherence. Uh, right. No, it's a really, it's a really neat model. I think it, in, in especially what I know of it in, um, developing countries, you know, one of the great challenges are the queues at the pharmacy. You know, I mean, it's just the, the waiting lines. And so part of it was structurally having a team of six people come together and commit to each other, you know, in terms of we're going to, um, each of us, one month is our turn to go fill up the medicines for the rest of us and bring them back. So there's this kind of shared responsibility um, brought together both the groupness, but also reduced the number of people needing to go to the pharmacy to get medicines. Now it's one going instead of, you know, each of the six going. I don't know of many group interventions, you know, that have been done domestically. A lot of it has been peer mentor, peer navigator, kind of one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and the group, it, I don't know of, of a group where there's really some sort of almost shared responsibility for each other's care and, and health. Um, I'm not familiar with those interventions being done. I mean, support groups for sure. You know, there's a group with some stigma reduction where it's a group to workshops, but I, I'm not personally familiar with domestically where you, you know, have folks who self-identify, want to be part of a group, 
um, and come together in some meaningful way to you know, impact each other's care. But I think there's a lot, I think this, is, I think this is one area I've thought for, you know, for a long time. There's clearly differences across contexts and cultures, but there's probably a lot of similarities in things that work across contexts and cultures that could be adapted for different settings. You know what I mean? Thinking about you know, what influences testing and linkage and retention, there's probably a lot that's shared no matter where you live in the world, um, and, and opportunities to, to borrow and try to do some things that work elsewhere in other settings. You know, one of the things that I see in visiting many, many, many clinics is that the buy-in from senior management, and as in any, you know, fighting battleship, that ship is the behavior of the, you know, officer in charge. And I see variations among clinics and variations among adherence, and granted it's not scientifically based, but just what you commented on, that, that minimal intervention from everybody in the clinic staff, that's a top-down yeah. decision. And so... Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, and, and you know, in our setting, our clinic director is just very engaged, very passionate, and, and gets buy-in from the team. So, I mean, from the CDC retention and care study, things grew out of that that are part of our culture now. We have gold star clinics. So every month at our staff meeting, he puts up a gold star clinic is a clinic where everyone shows up, and he puts up on that day, here's who had a gold star clinic in the month of November. I mean, it just as a way of acknowledging and just making sure everyone is aware of this is part of our culture and is really important. Um, there's definitely truth to that. Thank you all very much. Thanks so much. Thank you.